Chapter 9 All three of us, by some means or another, managed, between Nuremberg and the Black Forest, to get into trouble. Harris led off at Stuttgart by insulting an official. Stuttgart is a charming town, clean and bright, a smaller Dresden. It has the additional attraction of containing little that one need to go out of one's way to see. A medium-sized picture gallery, a small museum of antiquities, and half a palace. And you are through with the entire thing and can enjoy yourself. Harris did not know it was an official he was insulting. He took it for a fireman. It looked like a fireman. And he called it a dummer Esel. In German, you are not permitted to call an official a silly ass. But undoubtedly, this particular man was one. What happened was this. Harris, in the Stadtgarten, anxious to get out, and seeing a gate open before him, had stepped over a wire into the street. Harris maintains he never saw it, but undoubtedly there was hanging to the wire a notice, Durchgang verboten. The man, who was standing near the gates, stopped Harris and pointed out to him this notice. Harris thanked him and passed on. The man came after him and explained that treatment of the matter in such an offhand way could not be allowed. What was necessary to put the business right was that Harris should step back over the wire into the garden. Harris pointed out to the man that the notice said going through forbidden, and that, therefore, by re-entering the garden, that way he would be infringing the law a second time. The man saw this for himself, and suggested that to get over the difficulty Harris should go back into the garden by the proper entrance, which was round the corner, and afterwards immediately come out again by the same gate. Then it was that Harris called the man a silly ass. That delayed us a day, and cost Harris forty marks. I followed suit at Karlsruhe by stealing a bicycle. I did not mean to steal the bicycle. I was merely trying to be useful. The train was on the point of starting when I noticed, as I thought, Harris's bicycle still in the goods van. No one was about to help me. I jumped into the van and hauled it out, only just in time, wheeling it down the platform in triumph. I came across Harris's bicycle, standing against a wall behind some milk cans. The bicycle I had secured was not Harris's, but some other man's. It was an awkward situation. In England, I should have gone to the stationmaster and explained my mistake. But in Germany, they are not content with your explaining a little matter of this sort to one man. They take you round and get you to explain it to about half a dozen. And if any one of the half dozen happens not to be handy, or not to have time just then to listen to you, they have a habit of leaving you over for the night to finish your explanation the next morning. I thought I would just put the thing out of sight and then, without making any fuss or show, take a short walk. I found a woodshed which seemed just the very place and was wheeling the bicycle into it when... Unfortunately, a red-hatted railway official, with the airs of a retired field marshal, caught sight of me and came up. He said, What are you doing with that bicycle? I said, I am going to put it in this woodshed out of the way. I tried to convey by my tone that I was performing a kind and thoughtful action for which the railway officials ought to thank me. But he was unresponsive. Is it your bicycle? 
he said. Well, not exactly, I replied. Whose is it? he asked quite sharply. I can't tell you, I answered. I don't know whose bicycle it is. Where did you get it from? was his next question. There was a suspiciousness about his tone that was almost insulting. I got it, I answered with as much calm dignity as at the moment I could assume, out of the train. The fact is, I continued, frankly, I have made a mistake. He did not allow me time to finish. He merely said he thought so too and blew a whistle. Recollection of the subsequent proceedings is not, so far as I am concerned, amusing. By a miracle of good luck, they say Providence watches over certain of us, the incident happened in Karlsruhe, where I possess a German friend, an official of some importance. Upon what would have been my fate had the station not been at Karlsruhe, or had my friend been from home, I do not care to dwell. As it was, I got off, as the saying is, by the skin of my teeth. I should like to add that I left Karlsruhe without a stain upon my character, but that would not be the truth. My going scot-free is regarded in police circles there to this day as a grave miscarriage of justice. But all lesser sin sinks into insignificance beside the lawlessness of George. The bicycle incident had thrown us all into confusion with the result that we lost George altogether. It transpired subsequently that he was waiting for us outside the police court, but this at the time we did not know. We thought maybe he had gone on to Baden by himself, and anxious to get away from Karlsruhe and not perhaps thinking out things too clearly, we jumped into the next train that came up and proceeded thither. When George, tired of waiting, returned to the station, he found us gone, and found his luggage gone. Harris had his ticket. I was acting as banker to the party, so that he had in his pocket only some small change. Excusing himself upon these grounds, he thereupon commenced deliberately a career of crime that, reading it later, as set forth baldly in the official summons, made the hair of Harris and myself almost to stand on end. German travelling, it may be explained, is somewhat complicated. You buy a ticket at the station you start from for the place you want to go to. You might think this would enable you to get there, but it does not. When your train comes up, you attempt to swarm into it, but the guard magnificently waves you away. Where are your credentials? You show him your ticket. He explains to you that by itself, that is of no service whatever. You have only taken the first step towards travelling. You must go back to the booking office and get in addition what is called a Schnellzug ticket. With this you return, thinking your troubles over. You are allowed to get in. So far, so good. But you must not sit down anywhere, and you must not stand still, and you must not wander about. You must take another ticket, this time what is called a Platz ticket, which entitles you to a place for a certain distance. What a man could do who persisted in taking nothing but the one ticket, I have often wondered. Would he be entitled to run behind the train on the six-foot way? Or could he stick a label on himself and get into the goods van? Again, 
what could be done with a man who, having taken his Schnellzug ticket, obstinately refused or had not the money to take a Platz ticket? Would they let him lie in the umbrella rack or allow him to hang himself out of the window? To return to George, he had just sufficient money to take a third-class slow train ticket to Baden, and that was all. To avoid the inquisitiveness of the guard, he waited till the train was moving and then jumped in. That was his first sin. A. Entering a train in motion. B. After being warned not to do so by an official. Second sin. A. Travelling in train of superior class to that for which ticket was held. B. Refusing to pay difference when demanded by an official. George says he did not refuse. He simply told the man he had not got it. Third sin. A. Travelling in carriage of superior class to that for which ticket was held. B. Refusing to pay difference when demanded by an official. Again, George disputes the accuracy of the report. He turned his pockets out and offered the man all he had, which was about eightpence in German money. He offered to go into a third class, but there was no third class. He offered to go into the goods van, but they would not hear of it. Fourth sin. A. Occupying seat and not paying for same. B. Loitering about corridor, as they would not let him sit down without paying, and as he could not pay, it was difficult to see what else he could do. But explanations are held as no excuse in Germany, and his journey from Karlsruhe to Baden was one of the most expensive perhaps on record. Reflecting upon the case and frequency with which one gets into trouble here in Germany, one is led to the conclusion that this country would come as a boon and a blessing to the average young Englishman. To the medical student, to the eater of dinners at the temple, to the subaltern on leave, life in London is a wearisome proceeding. The healthy Briton takes his pleasure lawlessly, or it is no pleasure to him. Nothing that he may do affords to him any genuine satisfaction. To be in trouble of some sort is his only idea of bliss. Now, England affords him small opportunity in this respect. To get himself into a scrape requires a good deal of persistence on the part of the young Englishman. I spoke on this subject one day with our senior church warden. It was the morning of the 10th of November, and we were both of us glancing somewhat anxiously through the police reports. The usual batch of young men had been summoned for creating the usual disturbance the night before at the Criterion. My friend the churchwarden has boys of his own, and a nephew of mine upon whom I am keeping a fatherly eye is by a fond mother supposed to be in London for the sole purpose of studying engineering. No names we knew happened, by fortunate chance, to be in the list of those detained in custody, and... Relieved, we fell to moralising upon the folly and depravity of youth. It is very remarkable, said my friend, the churchwarden, how the criterion retains its position in this respect. It was just so when I was young. The evening always wound up with a row at the criterion. So meaningless, I remarked. So monotonous, he replied. You have no idea, he continued, 
a dreamy expression stealing over his furrowed face, how unutterably tired one can become of the walk from Piccadilly Circus to the Vine Street Police Court. Yet, what else was there for us to do? Simply nothing. Sometimes we would put out a street lamp, and a man would come round and light it again. If one insulted a policeman, he simply took no notice. He did not even know he was being insulted. Or, if he did, he seemed not to care. You could fight a Covent Garden porter if you fancied yourself at that sort of thing. Generally speaking, the porter got the best of it. And when he did, it cost you five shillings. And when he did not, the price was half a sovereign. I could never see much excitement in that particular sport. I tried driving a hansom cab once. That has always been regarded as the acme of modern Tom and Jerryism. I stole it late one night from outside a public house in Dean Street, and the first thing that happened to me was that I was hailed in Golden Square by an old lady surrounded by three children, two of them crying and the third one half asleep. Before I could get away, she had shot the brats into the cab, taken my number, paid me, so she said, a shilling over the legal fare, and directed me to an address a little beyond what she called North Kensington. As a matter of fact, the place turned out to be the other side of Willesden. The horse was tired, and the journey took us well over two hours. It was the slowest lark I ever remember being concerned in. I tried once or twice to persuade the children to let me take them back to the old lady. But every time I opened the trap door to speak to them, the youngest one, a boy, started screaming. And when I offered other drivers to transfer the job to them, most of them replied in the words of a song popular about that period, Oh, George, don't you think you're going just a bit too far? One man offered to take home to my wife any last message I might be thinking of while another promised to organise a party to come and dig me out in the spring. When I mounted the dickey, I had imagined myself driving a peppery old colonel to some lonesome and cabless region, half a dozen miles from where he wanted to go, and there leaving him upon the curbstone to swear. About that, there might have been good sport, or there might not, according to circumstances, and the colonel... The idea of a trip to an outlying suburb in charge of a nursery full of helpless infants had never occurred to me. No, London, concluded my friend the churchwarden, with a sigh, affords but limited opportunity to the lover of the illegal. Now, in Germany, on the other hand, trouble is to be had for the asking. There are many things in Germany that you must not do that are quite easy to do. To any young Englishman yearning to get himself into a scrape and finding himself hampered in his own country, I would advise a single ticket to Germany. A return, lasting as it does only a month, might prove a waste. In the police guide of the fatherland, he will find set forth a list of the things the doing of which will bring to him interest and excitement. In Germany, you must not hang your bed out of window. He might begin with that. By waving his bed out of window, he could get into trouble before he had his breakfast. At home, he might hang himself out of window, and nobody would mind much, provided he did not obstruct anybody's ancient lights or break away and injure any passer underneath. In Germany, you must not wear fancy dress in the streets. 
A Highlander of my acquaintance, who came to pass the winter in Dresden, spent the first few days of his residence there in arguing this question with the Saxon government. They asked him what he was doing in those clothes. He was not an amiable man. He answered he was wearing them. They asked him why he was wearing them. He replied to keep himself warm. They told him frankly that they did not believe him and sent him back to his lodgings in a closed landau. The personal testimony of the English minister was necessary to assure the authorities that the Highland garb was the customary dress of many respectable, law-abiding British subjects. They accepted the statement, as diplomatically bound, but retain their private opinion to this day. The English tourist they have grown accustomed to, but a Leicestershire gentleman, invited to hunt with some German officers on appearing outside his hotel, was promptly marched off, horse and all, to explain his frivolity at the police court. Another thing you must not do in the streets of German towns is to feed horses, mules or donkeys, whether your own or those belonging to other people. If a passion seizes you to feed somebody else's horse, you must make an appointment with the animal, and the meal must take place in some properly authorised place. You must not break glass or china in the street, nor, in fact, in any public resort whatever. And if you do, you must pick up all the pieces. What you are to do with the pieces when you have gathered them together, I cannot say. The only thing I know for certain is that you are not permitted to throw them anywhere to leave them anywhere, or apparently to part with them in any way whatever. Presumably you are expected to carry them about with you until you die, and then be buried with them, or maybe you are allowed to swallow them. In German streets, you must not shoot with a crossbow. The German lawmaker does not content himself with the misdeeds of the average man. The crime one feels one wants to do, but must not. He worries himself imagining all the things a wandering maniac might do. In Germany, there is no law against a man standing on his head in the middle of the road. The idea has not occurred to them. One of these days, a German statesman, visiting a circus and seeing acrobats, will reflect upon this omission. Then he will straightway set to work and frame a clause forbidding people from standing on their heads in the middle of the road and fixing a fine. This is the charm of German law. Misdemeanor in Germany has its fixed price. You are not kept awake all night, as in England, wondering whether you will get off with a caution, be fined 40 shillings, or, catching the magistrate in an unhappy moment for yourself, get seven days. You know exactly what your fun is going to cost you. You can spread out your money on the table, open your police guide, and plan out your holiday to a 50 pfennig piece. For a really cheap evening, I would recommend walking on the wrong side of the pavement after being cautioned not to do so. I calculate that by choosing your district and keeping to the quiet side streets, you could walk for a whole evening on the wrong side of the pavement at a cost of little over three marks. In German towns, you must not ramble about after dark in droves. I am not quite sure how many constitute a drove, and no official to whom I have spoken on this subject has felt himself competent to fix the exact number. I once put it to a German friend who was starting for the theatre with his wife, his mother-in-law, five children of his own, his sister and her fiancé, and two nieces, if he did not think he was running a risk under this by-law. He did not take my suggestion as a joke. He cast an eye over the group. 
Oh, I don't think so, he said. You'll see, we are all one family. The paragraph says nothing about its being a family drove or not, I replied. It simply says, drove. I do not mean it in any uncomplimentary sense, but speaking etymologically, I am inclined personally to regard your collection as a drove. Whether the police will take the same view or not remains to be seen. I am merely warning you. My friend himself was inclined to poo-poo my fears, but his wife, thinking it better not to run any risk of having the party broken up by the police at the very beginning of the evening, they divided, arranging to come together again in the theatre lobby. Another passion you must restrain in Germany is that prompting you to throw things out of window. Cats are no excuse. During the first week of my residence in Germany, I was awakened incessantly by cats. One night I got mad. I collected a small arsenal, two or three pieces of coal, a few hard pears, a couple of candle ends, an odd egg I found on the kitchen table, an empty soda water bottle, and a few articles of that sort, and, opening the window, bombarded the spot from where the noise appeared to come. I do not suppose I hit anything. I never knew a man who did hit a cat, even when he could see it except maybe by accident when aiming at something else. I have known crackshots, winners of Queen's Prizes, those sorts of men, shoot with shotguns at cats fifty yards away and never hit a hare. I have often thought that instead of bullseyes, running deer and that rubbish, the really superior marksman would be he who could boast that he had shot the cat. But anyhow, they moved off. Maybe the egg annoyed them. I had noticed when I picked it up that it did not look a good egg, and I went back to bed again, thinking the incident closed. Ten minutes afterwards there came a violent ringing of the electric bell. I tried to ignore it, but it was too persistent, and, putting on my dressing gown, I went down to the gate. A policeman was standing there. He had all the things I had been throwing out of the window in a little heap in front of him, all except the egg. He had evidently been collecting them. He said... Are these things yours? I said. They were mine, but personally I have done with them. Anybody can have them. You can have them. He ignored my offer. He said, You threw these things out of window? You were right, I admitted. I did. Why did you throw them out of window? He asked. A German policeman has his code of questions arranged for him. He never varies them, and he never omits one. I threw them out of the window at some cats, I answered. What cats? he asked. It was the sort of question a German policeman would ask. I replied with as much sarcasm as I could put into my accent that I was ashamed to say I could not tell him what cats. I explained that, personally, they were strangers to me, but I offered, if the police would call all the cats in the district together, to come round and see if I could recognise them by their yawl. The German policeman does not understand a joke which is perhaps on the whole just as well, for I believe there is a heavy fine for joking with any German uniform. They call it treating an official with contumely. He merely replied that it was not the duty of the police to help me recognise the cats. Their duty was merely to fine me for throwing things out of window. I asked what a man was supposed to do in Germany when woke up night after night by cats, and he explained that I could lodge an information against the owner of the cat when the police would proceed to caution him and, if necessary, order the cat to be destroyed. 
Who was going to destroy the cat, and what the cat would be doing during the process, he did not explain. I asked him how he proposed I should discover the owner of the cat. He thought for a while and then suggested that I might follow it home. I did not feel inclined to argue with him any more after that. I should only have said things that would have made the matter worse. As it was, that night's sport cost me twelve marks, and not a single one of the four German officials who interviewed me on the subject could see anything ridiculous in the proceedings from beginning to end. But in Germany, most human faults and follies sink into comparative insignificance beside the enormity of walking on the grass. Nowhere and under no circumstances may you at any time in Germany walk on the grass. Grass in Germany is quite a fetish. The very dogs respect German grass. No German dog would dream of putting a paw on it. If you see a dog scampering across the grass in Germany, you may know for certain that it is the dog of some unholy foreigner. In England, when we want to keep dogs out of places, we put up wire netting six feet high, supported by buttresses, and defended on the top by spikes. In Germany, they put a notice board in the middle of the place, Hunden verboten, and a dog that has German blood in its veins looks at that notice board and walks away. In a German park, I have seen a gardener step gingerly with felt boots onto grass plot, and removing therefrom a beetle, place it gravely but firmly on the gravel, which done, he stood sternly watching the beetle to see that it did not try to get back on the grass, and the beetle, looking utterly ashamed of itself, walked hurriedly down the gutter and turned up the path marked Ausgang. In German parks, separate roads are devoted to the different orders of the community, and no one person, at peril of liberty and fortune, may go upon another person's road. There are special paths for wheel riders and special paths for foot-goers, avenues for horse riders, roads for people in light vehicles and roads for people in heavy vehicles, ways for children and for alone ladies. That no particular route has yet been set aside for bald-headed men or new women has always struck me as an omission. In the Grosser Garten in Dresden, I once came across an old lady, standing helpless and bewildered, in the centre of seven tracks. Each was guarded by a threatening notice warning everybody of it, but the person for whom it was intended. "'I am sorry to trouble you,' said the old lady, on learning I could speak English and read German. "'But would you mind telling me what I am and where I have to go?' I inspected her carefully. I came to the conclusion that she was a grown-up and a foot-goer and pointed out her path. She looked at it and seemed disappointed. But I don't want to go down there, she said. Mayn't I go this way? Great heavens, no, madam, I replied. That path is reserved for children. But I wouldn't do them any harm, said the old lady with a smile. She did not look the sort of old lady who would have done them any harm. Madam, I replied, if it rested with me, I would trust you down that path, though my own firstborn were at the other end, but I can only inform you of the laws of this country. For you, a full-grown woman, to venture down that path is to go to certain fine, if not imprisonment. There is your path marked plainly, nur für Fußgänger, and if you will follow my advice, you will hasten down it. You are not allowed to stand here and hesitate. It doesn't lead a bit in the direction I want to go said the old lady. It leads in the direction you ought to want to go, I replied, and we parted.
In the German parks, there are special seats labelled only for grown-ups, nur für Erwachsene. And the German small boy, anxious to sit down and reading that notice, passes by and hunts for a seat in which children are permitted to rest. And there he seats himself, careful not to touch the woodwork with his muddy boots. Imagine a seat in Regent's or St. James's Park labelled only for grown-ups. Every child for five miles round would be trying to get on that seat and hauling other children off who were on. As for any grown-up, he would never be able to get within half a mile of that seat for the crowd. The German small boy, who has accidentally sat down on such without noticing, rises with a start when his error is pointed out to him and goes away with downcast head brushing to the roots of his hair with shame and regret. Not that the German child is neglected by a paternal government. In German parks and public gardens, special places, Spielplätze, are provided for him, each one supplied with a heap of sand. There he can play to his heart's content at making mud pies and building sandcastles. To the German child, a pie made of any other mud than this would appear an immoral pie. It would give to him no satisfaction. His soul would revolt against it. Said pie, he would say to himself, was not as it should have been, made of government mud specially set apart for the purpose. It was nor manufactured in the place planned and maintained by the government for the making of mud pies. It can bring no real blessing with it. It is a lawless pie. And until his father had paid the proper fine and he had received his proper licking, his conscience would continue to trouble him. Another excellent piece of material for obtaining excitement in Germany is the simple domestic perambulator. What you may do with a Kinderwagen, as it is called, and what you may not, covers pages of German law after the reading of which you conclude that the man who can push a perambulator through a German town without breaking the law was meant for a diplomatist. You must not loiter with a perambulator, and you must not go too fast. You must not get in anybody's way with a perambulator, and if anybody gets in your way, you must get out of their way. If you want to stop with a perambulator, you must go to a place specially appointed where perambulators may stop, and when you get there, you must stop. You must not cross the road with a perambulator. If you and the baby happen to live on the other side, that is your fault. You must not leave your perambulator anywhere, and only in certain places can you take it with you. I should say that in Germany you could go out with a perambulator and get into enough trouble in half an hour to last you for a month. Any young Englishman anxious for a row with the police could not do better than come over to Germany and bring his perambulator with him. In Germany... You must not leave your front door unlocked after ten o'clock at night, and you must not play the piano in your own house after eleven. In England, I have never felt I wanted to play the piano myself, or to hear anyone else play it after eleven o'clock at night. But that is a very different thing to being told that you must not play it. Here in Germany, I never feel that I really care for the piano until eleven o'clock. Then I could sit and listen to the Maiden's Prayer or the Overture to Zampa with pleasure. To the law-loving German, on the other hand, music after eleven o'clock at night ceases to be music. It becomes sin and as such gives him no satisfaction. The only individual throughout Germany who ever dreams of taking liberties with the law is the German student and he only to a certain well-defined point. 
By custom, certain privileges are permitted to him, but even these are strictly limited and clearly understood. For instance, the German student may get drunk and fall asleep in the gutter with no other penalty than that of having the next morning to tip the policeman who has found him and brought him home. But for this purpose, he must choose the gutters of side streets. The German student, conscious of the rapid approach of oblivion, uses all his remaining energy to get round the corner where he may collapse without anxiety. In certain districts, he may ring bells. The rent of flats in these localities is lower than in other quarters of the town, while the difficulty is further met by each family preparing for itself a secret code of bell ringing by means of which it is known whether the summons is genuine or not. When visiting such a household late at night, it is well to be acquainted with this code, or you may, if persistent, get a bucket of water thrown over you. Also, the German student is allowed to put out lights at night, but there is a prejudice against his putting out too many. The larky German student generally keeps count, contenting himself with half a dozen lights per night. Likewise, he may shout and sing as he walks home up till half past two, and at certain restaurants it is permitted to him to put his arm round the Fraulein's waist. To prevent any suggestion of unseemliness, the waitresses at restaurants frequented by students are always carefully selected from among a staid and elderly class of women, by reason of which the German student can enjoy the delights of flirtation without fear and without reproach to anyone. They are a law-abiding people, the Germans. (laughs) 